Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options program on WERU. On today's Healthy Options, we have as our guest Ian Ramsey, writer, educator, wilderness athlete, musician, long-term backcountry traveler, ultra runner and climate change activist. He is the founder and director of the Kaufman Program for Environmental Writing and Wilderness Exploration at North Yarmouth Academy, where he teaches environmental writing, brain science, physiology, music, and mindfulness. In addition, he's founding board member of Physiology First, a nonprofit that gives students around the world science-based tools they can use to reduce stress and anxiety. Ian Ramsey also leads activities related to brain science, breathing, and adapting physiology for learning and high performance. We're happy to have Ian Ramsey here with us today to talk about all of this, how it helps students and all of us become healthier and more resilient. Welcome to Healthy Options, Ian Ramsey. There you are. Oh, so, so good to be here. Thank you so much, Rhonda. I really appreciate it. Well, you are a very, uh, yeah. you're a very, very busy guy, um, and you are a teacher. And in in that work, working with students, what what motive, what brings all of this into focus as as a teacher? How does that inform your work right now? Well, so we are in a moment of. Um, about sort of mindfulness, mental health. I don't think I need to tell you that, but um, you know, we just had a big report that came out last week um, where the, I think it was the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association declared a national emergency for children's mental health. Um, and as an educator, I see my students really struggling. Um, I saw them struggling before COVID and then COVID accelerated that process. So we're in a moment where one out of four college students has suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. um, we're in a moment where we have kids as young as three being put on medications. Um, and it's just a really, it's a really tough situation. I mean, it's tough for adults as well. Um, but, you know, to, for students and these kids who are still in a phase of life where their brain is literally being formed and their nervous systems are being formed, to have their baseline be that I think is really tragic. So um, I think, and but at the same time, we also know more than ever about the mechanisms underlying that. I think that part is really exciting. So a lot of what I'm trying to community um, tools to be stronger, more resilient human beings, to be more adaptable, um, to give them the loci of loci of control, so that they can be more interesting humans, so they can project themselves out into the world in powerful and beautiful ways and serve their serve their world. So there are two aspects here. One is definitely mental health, not just because we're living in the times we're living in, in, in our world, um, but also because uh, I think what you're talking about is some sort of systemic issue about how we're seeing all of us, but, but younger people, kids, being somehow um, pathologized as they work through their their uh, their lives. So, tell me about how you're working with that, and because you deal with yeah. high school students, don't you mostly? So I work primarily with high school students, but I work with younger students. I work with all the way down to elementary at times. Um, as I work with adults, um, through the work we do with physiology first, we work with kids of all ages around the world. 
Um, and so a lot of it gives, you know, is educating people about their brains and their bodies. You know, I think it's one, it's one of these interesting things. We all talk about stress. We all talk about anxiety. We all talk about depression. But if you were to ask, you know, 30 people, well, what is anxiety? You'd probably get 30 different answers. And so we're in this moment where um, there's a lot, people know that it's, a, it's an issue, but they don't really know what to do. And there's a lot of kind of cultural stories and cultural baggage floating around with that stuff. And so I think the approach that I and my organization, um, Physiology First, which we try to use is a using a physiology-based and science-based approach, you know, saying, okay, so, you know, we do know that when you're feeling anxiety, these, these hormones are flooding through your body. We know that your pupils are dilating, that you have galvanic skin response, that your heart rate is going up. And we know that there are workarounds that we can use to change that, to help you change your state. You know, what I often see is, you know, you think about sort of 21st century normal, which is tired, wired, and stressed, right? And you have people living in chronic stress. And, and we're at the moment where, you know, I think if you think about it, it's not uh, some quirk in the system. It's a feature of the system. If you sit all day, if you sit 11 hours a day, like most people under fluorescent lights, staring at screens, um, you know, taking in news that's often like marketed to be negative so that you'll pay more attention, right? Because it fires up your amygdala, right? So if you're, if you're in that situation, you're not exercising, you're eating processed foods, like, of course you're, you're depressed and anxious. Like that's a logical result, right? So, so trying to help people understand that and then also give them the ability to shift their state. You know, most people, if you think about a car, you have first gear through fifth gear. Most people kind of are in second or third gear, like all the time, no matter what the situation, right? But if you can help, you know, people to be able to, you know, go down to first gear to relax and to sleep, but then also when they, sometimes to gear to fifth gear, so they can really kind of express energy and do hard things, but then be able to throttle that back and up and down and have control over that. It, I think it's a, it's a really powerful thing and it helps them to match whatever situation they're in as opposed to trying to use their small skill set to in whatever situation they're in. So um, I find it to be, so when I'm working with students, it's everything from self-talk strategies to breath work, physical movement, um, talking about the effects of technology, um, social pieces, all, all of that stuff. There's a, there's a whole, there's a whole toolkit there. Okay. So we're now, we're going to have to get specific. Tell us one technique that you would, addressed to uh to a student what how old 14 yeah sure yeah you know and and well let's just start there and then we can say how would that be different would it be different if you're working with an 18 year old or you know that kind of thing but let's say you're 14 and you don't you just have all these feelings going on and it's whatever you're just living your 14 year old life and there you are. I've met Ian. And <laughs> what do we, uh, what would you, how would you talk to him? Yeah, well, so it's, yeah, of course. Yes. Well, so I'd start. So typically when I talk to kids that age, I start by framing these things and talking about anytime I talk to anybody, I try to try to frame things in a value set that matches theirs. So often when I'm talking to a teenager, I'm talking to them about people they admire, celebrities they admire. So it might be athletes, it might be 
media people, it might be influencers, whatever, right? And so I can say, oh, look, Tom Brady and LeBron James are doing breath work to increase their performance, right? And, and they're like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. So as a result, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing to me, but I'll have like 14-year-old boys be like, can we do breath work now? I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, that's great. Um, so I'll often, uh, so I'll give two examples of breath work exercises that I think are super useful. Um, the first is called box breathing. It's become pretty standard, um, but I've, I, my students use this constantly. At my school, every senior has to give a speech to the entire school. Um, and I've had some of my, two in the last two weeks, I've had a number of students give these speeches. And it's, it's one of the most stressful things of their life. You know, they're up there in front of hundreds of people um, expressing themselves, super vulnerable. Their families in the audience, their grandparents are in the audience. Um, and so box breathing is this, is this really nice exercise you can do that essentially just returns you to a baseline. So if you're tired, it can wake you up. If you're kind of anxious, uh, it can bring you right back down. It just kind of gives you, okay. And so what box breathing is, is I'm going to start and I'm going to, I'm going to imagine a box, just like a four-sided box. And one side is breathing in, one side is holding, one side is breathing out and one side is holding. So what we'll do for now is we'll we'll do a four side uh, a four count on each side. Well, hold okay. on, Ian. I, I just want to to tell people if you've just tuned in, we are listening to Ian Ramsey. We're having a conversation um, about a. Uh, uh, different kinds of mindfulness techniques and now a breathing technique that we can use to uh, deal with um, and become resilient and, and deal with anxiety. If you are driving, please pay attention to the road. <laughs> if you are at home, just take a moment, sit down quietly, right? Just get into a comfortable position and Ian, take it away. Okay. All right. And this is a great one for driving. I do this one driving all the time. Actually. Okay, good. Um, so so what I'm going to do is I am going to, first of all, I'm going to breathe through, breathe through my nose. Um, so the science tells us that um, your mouth, you can breathe through your mouth, but it's more of an, an emergency breathing system. You're, des you're designed to breathe through your nose. Your nose has hairs in it that filter air. Whereas when you breathe through your mouth, your mouth, like it, it sends a message to your nervous system that there's kind of some kind of danger or threat and your nervous system gets kind of jacked up. So we're going to breathe through our nose. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna breathe in for four breaths. So one, two, three, four. Then I'm gonna hold that for four breaths. One, two, three, four. I'm gonna breathe out through my nose for four breaths. One, two, three, four. I'm gonna hold for four breaths. One, for four beats. Two, three, four. I'm gonna breathe in through my nose again for four beats. One, two, Three, four. I'm gonna hold for four beats. One, two, three, four. I'm gonna breathe out through my nose for four beats. One, two, three, four. I'm gonna breathe out for four beats. One, two, three, four. And so I find that is a really just simple, basic technique. Um, you can play with it as well. Um, when I'm doing sort of more meditation, mindfulness stuff on my own, I will expand that up to like 12 beats per, um, per hold, which really, it really brings your nervous system way down in a really nice way. Um, but it's a nice thing. I mean, it keeps you focused and it gives you a good baseline. Now, if I have a student who, uh, is feeling more anxious, 
and we quickly want to get them out of that, we'll use what's called a physiological sigh. And this comes to us from Andrew Huberman, science okay. lab at Stanford. Oh, uh, Ian, and you Andrew just has the number one health podcaster and the brain. Yeah. You're, you're going to have to say it again because we are, have a little funky connection every now and then you, you uh, warp a little bit. And so we didn't get to okay. hear the name of this person. Say it mm -hmm. again. Cause we want to know who this is. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so his name is Andrew Huberman uh, and he runs a neuroscience lab at Stanford uh, and his, and they study neuroscience and they particularly focus on fear. Um, and the eye. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, so, but this is called a physiological sigh. And so what, and this is something that you've already done. You just didn't know you were doing it. Um, this is something, if you have a dog, your dog does it all the time. Okay. <laughs> Cause our dogs are like way more intuitively connected to their physiology than we are. Um, and so again, we're going to breathe it in through our nose. And so what you do is you take a full inhale through your nose. And when you're all the way in, you then Breathe in just a little more, even beyond that. And then you breathe out through your mouth. A long, slow exhale. Okay, so again, you breathe in through your nose, and then a little more, and then out through your mouth. And essentially what you're doing is you're blowing off CO2. You're blowing off carbon dioxide. Um, and that is like remarkable how quickly that can just bring down any kind of anxiety or worry immediately, just kind of shift your physiology. Um, one of the things we always say is that mood follows action. So if you want to change your mood, there are actions that you can take to do that. Um, so that's a, that's a perfect example of that. Just like if you're, another thing you can do if you're anxious is um, literally the, the studies show us forward motion will help you manage anxiety. So if you're feeling anxious, like start walking and, you know, what you don't want to do is sit still because that kind of cues your fight or flight response to your vagal nerves. Um, but just a little bit of forward motion that helps as well. So hmm. super simple studies, um, super simple activities, but I find that these are like very approachable. They're very simple. Anybody can do them. And what's cool is you can feel the results immediately. You get that feedback immediately. And so kids can tell, like kids know how they feel. They don't want to feel anxious. They don't want to feel, you know, and, and so um, it's a conversation, you know, like when you're going to bed, how do you bring down your nervous system to be ready to go to sleep? Right. Or if you have a soccer game, how do you bring up your energy level so that you're ready to go? Right. And, do, and it's better to do these things instead of like drinking Red Bull or, you know, or all the other things that we know that people do. Uh, to shift their state. So um, I find that I find that it, kids respond really well to it and adults. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really, it's really, really useful. So here we are working with our nervous system. And if you listen to my show, Ian, um, we, you know, we, I have a very trauma informed audience because we do a lot of things about trauma resiliency. And mm -hmm. so this is just sure. another, a really lovely hands-on way to, to move in, into this kind of, of, of state of really getting your parasympathetic nervous system to, very, to cool out when we're so charged. Mm -hmm. And I know you do a lot with brain science. So do you teach that? Do you actually talk about the physiology of, of what our brains do when we're in a different emotional state, when we're in the level of sensation? And is that helpful 
to some, I imagine for some kids who are in the cognitive, tell me why that would be good. And then I guess you have other kids who are more in the experiential. I don't, you know, I care why, but let's just feel the breath. Sure. How do we balance that in our, in our world is where working even as adults to, to reduce that kind of uh, charged system. Yeah. So I, I think that uh, what I find is that certainly some, some people are more interested intrinsically in the mechanics than others, but at the end of the day, I, I think for anybody understanding some of the basic mechanics is really useful because essentially you're looking under the hood and you're understanding what's happening. And even if you don't remember the names of certain neurotransmitters, you're going to remember some of what they do and it's going to make you pay attention. You know, so like the conversation I'll have with students, if I have a student who's feeling anxious in my class, you know, I, we learn all the neurotransmitters, not if we learn all of them, but we learn, you know, they, my students learn maybe a dozen different neurotransmitters. They learn different parts of the brain, right? So, and then, and then we're constantly reinforcing, integrating that through their daily experience. So if a kid's feeling anxious, I'm like, all right, so um, what, what neurotransmitters are probably kind of firing right now in your brain, right? That's probably some cortisol. That's probably norepinephrine, right? And what could we do? That's your amygdala. And what could we do then? What strategies could we use that you have learned to counter that, right? Um, you know, if a student is having a hard time remembering something, I'm like, well, maybe that's your hippocampus. Maybe your long-term memory isn't doing right quite what it should. You know, and so helping them to kind of just understand these things, and it just becomes part of the daily conversation, right? So, so they understand. They understand the difference between parasympathetic nervous system and, 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 and the sympathetic nervous system and the limbic system. And often a lot of the students who work with me are also athletes. Um, and so the beautiful thing about, athlete, about athletics is that unlike what is sometimes the case in the academic world, you are in these moments where you are literally in real time, your nervous system is fired up, you know, for an average high school sophomore on a Tuesday afternoon in algebra two class, their nervous system is not particularly engaged, which is often why they're not learning. Um, whereas if they're in a soccer game and someone is running at them, their nervous system is engaged and there are consequences and they are forced to pay attention. And I actually think that we should try to move education more in a direction where students uh, that we create structures where students have to focus and where there are consequences because they're more likely to learn and pay attention. Tell, um, tell me more. If you say your nervous system is engaged, mm -hmm. um, tell me what that means about learning. How, how are you putting that together? I, I mm, we understand yeah. the nervous system as you know when you're really charged that's your sympathetic nervous system and when you're mm -hmm. relaxed that's your your uh, your parasympathetic and we and that parasympathetic allows you to kind of flow a little bit but now you're saying that we need a little bit of a charge to learn that you're saying there's something about stress or is that a word that we should use with this or yeah, I think, I mean, I, you know, there, there's, so there's, there's distress and there's eustress, right? There's different kinds of stress. Often stress kind of gets lumped in as stress is bad. But the fact of the matter is, is usually our best experiences are life in life are when there is some element of stress not, that's not debilitating, but there's an element of stress that is then relieved, right? And that forces us to be alert and to pay attention, right? So like, Anytime you're really engaged in something, there's just a little bit of norepinephrine floating through your brain there, right? That's just kind of making you pay attention, 
right? Norepinephrine does what, Ian? Norepinephrine? uh, It's it's stress. Norepinephrine is a a neurotransmitter that just relates to just like a little bit of stress. You know, it's, it's kind of in the same ballpark as cortisol. You know, it's in that same ballpark, you know, but that's what forces you to pay attention, you know, and without that, you're not inclined to pay attention. Your, your brain, you know, cause our brains are not designed for optimal performance. They're designed to keep us alive. And we pay attention to things that like stress us out a little bit. Now, obviously we don't want that to be debilitating, um, but we need just a little bit of it to pay attention. And so, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, one of the things I'll do with my class, if they're not paying attention or if they're sleepy, I have a, I have a small trampoline in my classroom. We'll go outside and we'll blast a bunch of music and they all have to jump and down up and down on the trampoline and spell their name backwards. And so, so first of all, it's making them think it's making them pay attention. It's making them move their, their lymph nodes are kind of getting a little cleansed there. And also there's a little bit of social cortisol of like, I don't want to mess up in front of my friends and like two minutes of that. And the whole class is switched on. Um, It also seems like people would laugh hysterically when you can't do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you get that kind of endorphin. Yeah. So that kind of stress, that's, that's really fun. So everybody outside now, we're, we got the trampoline things happening. Just get out there. Wait, wait, no, stay by your radio. Okay. <laughs> right. Jump up and down, everybody, right now. Stand up. I'm standing up. We're all jumping up and down now. So there's that sense of uh, concentration. There's the mm-hmm. sense of a little bit of, oh, I'm trying to learn a new concept. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of... of of tension, but a good tension. Like, how does that, how does that work? How does that, you know, I'm an acupuncturist. How, how do those herbs work with this, you know, or mm-hmm. in your algebra class, what is that formula and why do I, you know, how do I multiply that and, you know, do this equation or how do yeah. I talk to my friend when we've had an argument? How do I know? Yeah. Yeah, no, exa- exactly. And, and, and as humans, we're, we're also wired for novelty. So anytime you can, you can switch things up a little bit like that and do something unexpected, it makes us pay attention. But along with novelty comes just a little bit of stress because it's something new, right? But those, those are all the things that make us pay attention. So it's interesting because um, some people might say, oh, we we're going to have a little stress what, and we're going to have a little, uh, some sort of consequence. So it becomes negative because we're so tuned into an education system that's about punishment or about positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about a different, let's just have a moment everybody to look at stress in a different way as a positive thing. So the stress doesn't doesn't always mean heightened sympathetic nervous system. Tell tell us more or how you- Right, yeah. so, I mean, stress can take many forms, right? There's a spectrum spectrum of stress, right? From, you know, there's stress where you are having a panic attack and you're having a heart attack, right? That, that's one spectrum, right? And then, and then there's like, you're alert, right? And then there's, you're like relatively alert. And then there's, you're calm. And then there's, you're sleepy. And then there's a sleep and then there's dead, right? That's a spectrum, right? <laughs> and so often we kind of make this into like a cartoonish thing where any stress is bad, um, right? But but a l- little bit of stress applied skillfully, and and, th- and that is an important part, obviously. Yeah. Right, and everybody has different thresholds for stress, right? 
people who go on roller coasters probably have a different threshold for stress than people who do watercolor paintings in, you know, in a hayfield, right? And that's great. There's a lot of different kinds of human beings in this world and that and that's wonderful. But so so I'm always as an educator or as a human being trying to read someone and figuring out, okay, what is the appropriate level of stress, of novelty, of comfort, of any of these things to apply to this person in a situation to bring out the best possible result for them. Um, and so, I mean, I think anybody will say, if you, if you, you know, like we know that the happiest people, the most content people in the world are people who do hard things where they have a sense of meaning. That's what the research shows us. We as human beings are designed to do hard things. And if we don't do hard things, we get depressed. And that's, I would actually say that that's one of the reasons that we see so much depression in the world today is our lives uncertain, not for everybody, obviously, but for many people in sort of the developed world, our lives are more comfortable. And we, the, and the kind of stress that we have is chronic stress, right? We have stress from schedules and technology. You know, if you, you, know, if you think about an animal like, a cow, right? A cow is like the most relaxed animal ever, right? A cow, its eyes are on the side of its head. It just kind of is always sort of this very relaxed. It only has one gear, right? And maybe a bull has, has a couple, but like by and large, right? You think about a lion, a lion has all these different gears, right? A lion, 90, or your house cat, 99% of the time, your cat is just sort of this sleepy thing. But then all of a sudden it sees a mouse and boom, it goes after it, right? And that's an element of stress, right? That's cortisol. It's all those things. But then three seconds later, your cat goes back to sleep. Right? And that's what we want to do as humans. We want to be able to ratchet up and ratchet down and use our physiology and make our biology work for us so that we're not working against our biology. So what are the, uh, I, I noticed on your website, and we'll have this linked, you do a number of videos, which are, are very lovely that you did for, um, during the pandemic to teach, I, I imagine it, it's, it's on your website, so it's for anybody, but we talked about, you, you mm -hmm. talked about resiliency and that, mm -hmm. that said, let's talk, let's talk about resiliency and what that, what, what that means. I know we're, we're talking about it in a, in a different way, but let's talk about it specifically. Yeah. How do we maintain, become more resilient? How do we, how do we function during these, when we are stressed in that not so nuanced positive way? Of course, of course. Well, so I think this is a such a pertinent topic at this moment, right? Because we're in a moment where we live in a disruptive world, right? We live in a world where things are changing. And obviously, we've seen that from COVID. Um, but I would also say that COVID was probably the merely the first step. I'm guessing that we have a lot of things coming down the pike that will probably require resiliency to adapt to. If we think about technology, climate change, refugees, all, all, there's, a, I, I, there's a big list, right? Climate, and yep. so, yeah. So, so being resilient is really important. And the great thing about is one, we're built for it. We have those, we have those systems and mechanisms within us, comma, but we need to train them. But right? let's and, just and so it's a matter a, of building capacity. Let's just take a moment and, and let that sink mm -hmm. in, this idea that we are built for resiliency. See, I, I, I love that, this idea that we are resilient and we are adaptable. That is how, we've, how humanity has survived. That's, I guess it's an evolutionary technique in order for yeah. to survive. So imagine yourself as adaptable. 
imagine yourself as even when the the tough stuff is coming in you are resilient you are able you're built for this How yeah exactly well think about 300,000 years ago when the first homo sapiens were on the planet so they had and they were they were identical to us they looked the same they had the same brains that we do they have the same bodies we do but imagine the things they did without shoes without clothing imagine the places they traveled to and they explored we have the same bodies and minds they did right think of think of think of the the our ancestors who got on boats very primitive boats and went across oceans think about our ancestors who went across mountains right i, I even think of i think about my my grandmother was born in 1914 and the first 30 years of my grandmother's life were world war 1 the roaring uh, the spanish flu the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, and World War II. By the time she was 30 years old, she'd experienced all that, right? And you think about what he, all the things that human beings have adapted to in that time. And if we weren't adaptable and we weren't resilient, we wouldn't be here. Um, so I think, and I, and I actually take a lot of, uh, I, I, I'm honored by that. I think it's really powerful to think that we are part of this lineage of these powerful, adaptable creatures that have figured all these things out. You know, that's, I always say like, we're, we are large, clever monkeys that figure things out and adapt. That's what, that's what we are. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, but we, we will only adapt to what we're called to adapt to. Right. So if you live in a world where your life is static and you are in climate controlled environments where everything is 72 degrees and food just kind of shows up and you eat it and you don't have to exercise. That's what you adapt to. Right. And if you live in Rwanda in the 1990s, you adapt to that. Right. And obviously we, we hope to do this in ways that reduce suffering. Right. But, but at the same time, the, the research does show us that actually like, I think, I mean, you think about, again, we are designed to face challenges and often the times we feel best in our lives is when we overcome challenges and we, we realize we have capacity that we didn't have before. So a lot of what I try to do with my students is help them to build capacity, right? And so it's not, you know, you don't go from being, you know, here, you know, way up to here. You know, that doesn't happen overnight, right? Yeah, we're, it's a we're process in radio. of challenging we're, yourself. So- so what right, we're talking right, about, right, we're, what we're talking about, although we are looking at each other. Um, so you're talking <laughs> base level to a what, what, what's the what's the low and what's the high that, that you were just describing? Oh, by okay, the way, so well, here, so, so, wait, wait. So here's let, let me just do a little business while we're mm-hmm. we're doing this. Yes, we're, we're going to do some visual radio in a minute. Um, I'm Rhonda Feynman. By the way, you're listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio, and if you've just joined us, we're We're talking with educator Ian Ramsey about how, as humans, we're resilient, we can stay healthy, and here are some other techniques that that we're learning to do all of that. So what was the love? Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So so here's a good example. I'm going to use the example of the big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton. So Laird Hamilton regularly surfs waves that are 80 to 100 feet high. Um, right. Waves that are taller than any New England church steeple, right. Um, massive, you know, he's surfing on essentially these, these collapsing mountains. Um, how did, and, and he's doing that in his like mid fifties too. He's no spring chicken. So he didn't just start doing that one day. 
he started on one foot waves and then two foot waves and then three foot waves and then four foot waves. And he gradually incrementally built up over decades to where he can do that. And so for him, that's actually not that risky because he is so experienced. He has the judgment, right? And we can think of a lot of people like that, right? We can think of a lot of people like that, right? You don't go, you don't just like wake up one morning and run a marathon, right? You train to run a marathon, right? You, you do that over time. You let your bones adapt, you let your physiology adapt, you figure out the nutrition and the hydration and, and you know, all of that stuff, right? And so I, when I'm working with, with students or any, any, any humans as, as an educator, that's what we do, right? I don't, I don't come into a class and like, all right, here's the final. You should know all this, right? I say, okay, here's the first step. We're, we're going to, today we're going to learn this. All right. And then once we've learned that, then we're going to move on to the next thing. And then we're going to work on integrating those things. Then we're going to move on to the third thing. And we're going to bring that into the picture. And we're going to do that over a period of weeks or months or even years until you have, you can embody this information and right. You have, you have mastery over it. Um, often people um, don't realize that, a, it's possible to do that, right? We tend to look at people who do great things and we're like, well, that's a, that's a different kind of person. That's, that's not me. Them. But it's all trainable. Yeah, but it's all trainable. Any of this stuff is trainable. Now, we all have certain capacities. At five foot eight, I'm probably not going to be a center in the NBA anytime soon, right? But there are things that I can do. There's a lot of things that I can do, right? And so learning to train and be willing to go slow initially to build that capacity and that foundation then allows you to continue to build that. And that, that's true of resilience. So um, for instance, they're like one of the, one of the people that's getting a lot of attention these days, that's kind of a reaction to the world of comfort that we live in. There's a guy, a Dutch guy named Wim Hof. And you, know, you may be familiar with Wim Hof. He, he's from Netherlands and he's developed this really interesting technique where he can thermoregulate his body and control his nervous system. Uh, so he can raise and lower his body temperature at will. You can put it, you can put him in a ice, a bat, ice bath and he can raise his body temperature. He can sweat while he's in no, there. No, wait a second. We all know about the great Houdini. You know, this is nothing new under the sun. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, I'm sure Houdini did some of these things too, right? I mean, right. right? He just, he just, he just used it as magic so as, as a marketing tool. Essentially. Right. So so, but Wim Hof, you know, has done, ran a marathon in the Sahara with no water. He climbed Mount Everest in a pair of shorts. He's done all these crazy things, but that didn't just happen one day, right? He started by getting in the water for 30 seconds and then he was in cold water for a minute. And then he, he gradually built up that capacity, right? And so one of the things I try to do with my students is look at people like him or people who do really extraordinary, seemingly superhuman things, and then break down the architecture of what it is they're doing and how they got there, right? And say like, which is to say to my students, you could do this also, right? And they have done this, right? At one point, we were all just sort of naked, screaming infants without control of our bowels. And hopefully we've moved beyond that, right? And so it's, you know, in the same way, we can keep learning, we can keep growing. And what's exciting is all the research around neuroplasticity is showing us that as adults, we can continue to grow and learn in a way that we didn't think we could even 15 or 20 years ago. So it's really our mindset or some artificially imposed limit that is saying we cannot do this, or this is who you are. As a student, you've, you've had a hard time doing this. That's, that means that's who you are. You're the kid who can't read, or you're the kid 
who's not good at math, or you're the kid who's whatever, or you're the really great kid who can do all of these things. And that would have its own charm and its own challenge, you know. To, oh yeah, the of course. Pressure of not yeah, no, I, I was. Yeah, I was. I was literally. I was ten minutes before I got in here with you. I was having a parent-teacher conference, and I was talking. I was talking about the idea of talent to to some parents, and talking about how it is very rare that the most talented students are the ones who end up being the best at something. Usually, the kids who you know, I, I teach some music classes and. The kids who are really talented in fifth grade where everything comes easily to them, they don't, they often, sometimes they, sometimes they do, but often they don't have to work. So they never learn how to work, right? Whereas the kid who is willing to sit there in a practice room with a metronome for hours and figure it out, it's going to take them a little longer, but, but within a couple of years, they easily outpace that other kid. Um, and so the, the whole idea of, I mean, there, there is certainly, there is something to talent. Um, but I'd say it's about 1% of the equation. You know, most of the equation is, is being willing to be adaptable, being willing to put in the slow, consistent patient work to do things. Um, and that's true of resilience. That's true of mindset. You know, that's true of meditation. That's true. Of, it's true of a lot of things, you know, that all this stuff is trainable. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world through social media where we see these images of people. And we think, well, that's really cool, but I can never do that. Um, but, but in most cases, we could. How do you, with all of this, because we did a little breath work before, how else do you integrate the breath? And, you know, not every time you're going to run out and jump on a trampoline. If you just joined us, we did that earlier. Mm -hmm. You missed the trampoline part, but you can get it in the archives. Well, really, you, you can come back to the trampoline in, in a little bit. Jump up and down if you didn't already. That, that's the first thing to stay. Pay attention to what we're doing here on Healthy Options with Ian Ramsey, who, by the way, is uh, talking to us today uh, about those kinds of, uh, of techniques to stay resilient and healthy. So let's bring in a little bit more of, of the breath. Um, do you do things in class sitting or how else do you integrate that kind of thing? We can do- Oh yes, I mean, there. yeah, there's a whole spectrum. So if you want, if someone is feeling sleepy and needs to wake up, you can do, you can just kind of do a breathing with, and th this is actually something that Wim Hof does, um, but it's almost like hyperventilating. It's just, if you just do like 10 really powerful breaths in and out, you know, <laughs> you do that for, you know, all of a sudden your, your physiology has switched on, your heart rate's gone up. Um, I will, I will use movement a lot. I'll have, I'll have, and that can be everything from, I'll have students switch their position where they're sitting in the classroom. Um, and just by literally that physical shift, um, they pay more attention. There's, there's actually some research around, around that. If, you know, if you're, if you're at a lecture and you want to really take in what's in the lecture, like halfway through the lecture, switch where you're sitting and the novelty yes. of that will make you pay more attention. Right. Um, I'll have students get up and do jumping jacks. Uh, I'll have them do squats. Um, you know, I think any, anything that, you know, and these are all things, I mean, we all do intuitive versions of this, right? We get up and stretch, right? That's, that's a version of that, right? We walk, we go rock around the block. We walk around the building, right? Um, and we do these things intuitively. I mean, I always, one of the examples I use with students, I think is a really interesting one, is I, I think that, you know, it's a good thing now that 
that not as many people smoke. But if you think about the traditional smoke break, that was really a breathing exercise, right? <laughs> you stop, you sit there, you have a small community of people. Uh, you are paying attention to your breath. You're breathing in an intentional, thoughtful way. Um, you're taking some nicotine, which uh, makes you also like sharpens your mind. You like one like thing that's really interesting the is there's a whole world of PhD, like like Nobel Prize winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a yeah there's a group of Nobel Prize winning scientists that wear nicotine patches when they need to write papers or perform really well now. Um, you know, there's like a, there's a whole world of that. And, yeah, and they're not addicted, but like once every six months when they've got something really big to do, they throw that on. You know, it's really it's it's interesting. You know, um, but you know, like so the the smoke break in its own way was us using our biology. Now, obviously it had some terrible side effects that we wouldn't want. Um, but I, you know, I remember all of a sudden be like, oh, that's, that's what's happening there. You know, well, there um, also, there's also social connection and, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think we know how, how to do that a little bit differently. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, if, if anyone is, is from Sweden or knows people from Sweden, there's something called Fika, which is happens mm -hmm. every single day. And it's more than a coffee break. You know, it's not you just grab the coffee and you go. It's like somebody, I know people in Sweden, there's an office. Let's say there are 20 people working in this office. Every mm -hmm. day, someone is responsible for fika. Coffee, tea, a pastry, whether that's good or bad, a snack. And you sit down and you talk. Not like about, about real things. You're not just, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's actually an built into the society every day, this idea of relaxation, of community and, and camaraderie. And so I would say, and you must know this too, that the, the big idea of social relationship, of community, is a huge part of, of what you're doing as well. And I did notice on your website that you were doing talking to, 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 I guess it's your students, but everybody who can listen on your website about kindness and what we know about compassion and kindness. And, and let's talk about bringing that other aspect of, of community and how we deal with each other, especially in a, in, well, I think there's always in history, always the sense of them, us separation. It's not like it's all been lots of, of, uh, of mutual, agreement so there's always you know people different people different mm -hmm. ideas this idea of kindness and compassion how do we teach that or how do we get that sense of more understanding so maybe we're not as as opposed or uh, have different uh, polariz polarized is the word i'm looking for what how do you how do you approach that with right your, with us? right well it's almost like you're saying that there's some polarization happening in our world right now, huh? Well, I just, uh, <laughs> I, I, could, I could, yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's, I could be. No, you're, 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 no, you're completely right, right? We live in a world that's utterly polarized right now, right? Yes. Um, and and there are very specific, in many cases, there are also very specific digital mechanisms behind that. Um, but I won't, I won't dig into well, that too much right we're, now. We're, we're talking um, about technology, AI, about being, uh, you know, being catered to people under trying to, uh, you know, algorithm you to get mm -hmm. the, the sense of, oh, this is what you like. So we're just going to feed it to you more. And the more we feed it to you, 
the more you'll do this behavior. So we're not, are we really independent? We can get into that at another time. Right, are we really self-actualized and working independently or are we being manipulated? Oh my gosh, did I actually bring up that can of worms? Yes, I did. But in the meantime, <laughs> we're going to talk about kindness and compassion as we throw out this idea of, right. uh, of yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, no, that, those are all good points. I mean, I, uh, so that scientist, Andrew Huberman, I mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, just did an interview uh, recently with Robert Sapolsky, who you may know, um, who's a, you know, cognitive behaviorist. And Sapolsky says, we have no free will, which I think is really interesting. And I, I don't, I don't know if I agree with him or not, but I think that that's very interesting. You know, he looks at as a, as a set of mechanisms. Um, but anyway, yeah. So in terms of kindness, I, I, so I think it starts with a few places. One, I think it starts with, if you can't be kind to yourself, you can't be, it's going to be really hard to be kind to others. So, so that starts with personal reflection. That starts with mindfulness. That starts with self-talk. Um, probably the quickest way that I can find that I've found to get students to, or humans to a baseline with that is to start with something like a box breathing to get you to just like a physiological baseline where it's not just your physiology being aggressive, right? So you start there, there and then throw and, in some if, gratitude, right? If you just if you just tuned in, we did the uh, box the, we did the box breathing um, a little bit earlier. Maybe well, well we'll we can talk about that very very quickly. Where you have uh, four sides and you take an in breath on one side and you an out breath. You 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 tell us just very quickly again if people just tuned in. What yeah, that means. yeah. So. Of course. Yeah. So to review box breathing, box breathing is a, is a basic technique. And interestingly enough, uh, I think while it has roots in the, in the world of yoga and pranayama, the person who actually codified it is a former Navy SEAL commander. And some of the leading practitioners of breathwork are actually the military, which is really interesting. Um, but um, so in a, in a box breath, you are holding your breath um, you're, you're, well, you start with an in-breath through your nose. You're doing all this through your nose. You're not breathing through your mouth. So you breathe in for, we'll say four beats. So in two, three, four, and then you hold for four breaths for four beats. One, two, three, four. And you breathe out through your nose for four beats. One, two, three, four. And then you hold for four beats. One, two, three, four. And you repeat that cycle. Um, and it's a great, it's a great exercise because you can do it anywhere, anytime. So anytime I'm in a meeting and I don't need to be like crazy engaged, that is like my default setting. now. I just sit there and box breathe. And as a result, I feel alert. I feel relaxed. I feel happy. Um, and like, I'm in a really good place. I do it driving. Uh, I do it, do it all the time. I get, going to sleep. I'll do it. Um, so anyway, so I'll start with that. And with anybody I'm working with, I'll just start with that. It's just like, that's, let's get it just go a basic physiological baseline where you're not all jacked up. You're not going to be as anxious. Um, you got that to go. And then, and then I'll start with some gratitude, right? Because gratitude does a bunch of things um, neuroscience wise. It makes us think outside of ourselves. Um, it, it, you get a big dump of serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter related to feeling good and happiness and kind of a coziness. Um, and it kind of connects you to other, other beings, we'll say. Okay. So, so I'll start with that. Um, and then once you've got the gratitude in place, then we'll do some, some kind of self-talk exercises where you're writing down some things, some things about yourself that you like. Right. And so you start there. Right. And even, 
if you don't believe those things by writing them down, you're moving the needle a little bit in the right direction. Uh, and maybe while we're doing that, I might even have you smile a little bit, even if it's fake, because literally by moving those muscles in your face, it connects to, it, it sends a message to your brain that you're happy, right? Um, then you, I'm going to have people start to think about other people that are close to them, people they love, people they appreciate, um, and really start to think about in very specific ways. What are the things about those people they appreciate? What do they like about those people? Right? And then, and then, so that we'll spend some time on that. And then maybe we'll fold in some more breathing while we're doing that. And then we'll start to move toward people that maybe they're not as comfortable with, not but as have them start to think about, well, why are those? Yeah. Right. And is that, is that something inside of you? Or maybe that's something inside of that person, but either way, there's a cause for that feeling. Right. And so really reflect on that and say, okay, so maybe if this person was rude to me, there's a reason for that. They're not just an inherently evil person, right? And so by doing that, you can kind of gradually build this practice of compassion. And then, you know, you can get into loving kindness meditation or different practices like that as well if you, if you, if you, if you want to go further. Um, you know, and the gold standard would be you go do a 45-day Vipassana uh, silent retreat and, you know, that, you know, but most of us aren't going to do that. So. You know, but there are ways where you can do these little sort of micro practices that will kind of help shift the needle. And if you do that for five, 10 minutes a day for a month or two, you see like pretty transformational changes in people. Uh, so yeah. that sense. Yes. So let's let's talk about that or just envision that for those who aren't familiar with what a loving kindness pra uh, practice may be, mindfulness practice. So we say May I be free of suffering. May I know happiness. Mm -hmm. May I be, have wisdom and, and have peace. And then you bring it to those you love, right? May mm -hmm. exactly. those people be free of suffering. May they know happiness. May they have wisdom. May they be cherished. And then to those people who may be a little bit the difficult person, and don't start with a really difficult person. No, you know? no. Again, you're a bit... Right. Cut you off in traffic, or yes, which is of course a, big, a huge mid-coast problem. But um, <laughs> but whatever, you know, um, may they be free of suffering, and mm -hmm. may they know happiness, and may they be wise and have wisdom. And then, where? Then the whole world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you Out can go cosmic. You can go cosmic if you want, go right? Like, like, yeah, Five yeah. I mean, I it's not about yeah. you. It's kind of getting out of yourself, isn't it? That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, all of these things come down to essentially we all have this voice on our prefrontal cortex that, that is always chattering and criticizing, right? That's the voice that's designed to keep us alive. And it's six times more likely to notice negative things than positive. It's our, it's our inner Woody Allen, right? And so all of these practices help to just kind of quiet that voice and allow us to kind of just be present and be here in the deep now. And that's the place you want to be. That's where you perform your best. That's where you feel your best. So, yeah. So you talked before about the flow or, you know, way back 
all the, the, the hours ago that we've been having this conversation um, about getting into the flow. And, and just by the way, if you have just joined us, this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Today we're speaking with Ian Ramsey, founder and director of the Kaufman Program for Environmental Writing and Wilderness Exploration at North Yarmouth Academy, where he teaches environmental writing, brain science, physiology, music, and mindfulness. And we are tapping into all of those kinds of uh, knowledge and skill. Thank you, Ian, for being with us. So that flow, you know, we, we truly only have a, about five, five minutes left or so. What, what is flow? We hear about that. And you're an athlete and, and we're, all of the techniques that we've talked about, what, what is flow? And what does that mean in terms of our lives and, and how we work, work in the world and produce or, or feel comfortable in ourselves? Uh, well, I'm so glad you brought that up because this is flow is kind of the gold standard of all this stuff. So uh, flow is a term that was coined by the uh, Czech science, uh, psychologist, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who just passed away last week. He literally just passed away. Unfortunately. Oh my. Um, but so flow is a state um, where you perform and feel your best. And what happens when in a flow state is you so it's a literal scientifically evidentiary based state um, where you um, essentially your prefrontal cortex gets shut off so instead of having to use all this mental energy to fight with that voice that's gone and at the same time you get this massive dump of all these neurotransmitters so you get serotonin you get dopamine you get oxytocin you get norepinephrine get all these things flushing through you at once. And what happens as a result is you're able to take in about hundred times much more, more information than you can normally take in and your performance and learning go through the roof. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting research into flow states uh, that's come out in the last 15 or 20 years. And interestingly, a lot of it's come from extreme athletes like Laird Hamilton, who I met before, I mentioned before, because if those athletes are not in a flow state, they die. So they've become masters of getting into that state. So that's and extreme. So sport, when you but... hear about, yeah, yeah, and but it's the same thing that artists get, musicians get, right? Like John Coltrane, I'm sure, was really good at being in a flow state. You know, Miles mm -hmm. Davis was really good at being in a flow state. Um, and so, and what we now know is we actually know the flow triggers to get you there. We've actually. The, the, the neurobiology is there. So we know that when you're operating at about 4% above your perceived capacity, um, so just at the outer edge of what you think you can do, again, kind of what we were talking about, just building just a little bit of capacity gradually over time, right? So when you're operating at 4% above your perceived capacity in a rich and a novel and rich environment, often in three dimensions, um, which is why a lot of these adventure sport athletes are really good at this. Um, and you, you can shift into this state and it's, it's, it's that moment we've all experienced versions of it. It's that moment when you're fo so focused on something that time either speeds up or slows down. So if you've ever been in a car accident and all of a sudden everything just slows way down, that's a flow state, right? If you have ever gotten really focused on something you're working on all of a sudden, like you wait, you look up and two hours have gone by. That's a flow state. Um, and it's possible to, again, like everything else, it's possible to train up flow so that you can have more of that in your life. And, and, and I, when I first learned about flow states, 
all of a sudden my entire life made sense. Cause all the things I like to do, whether it's long mountain runs or intensive sea kayaking or writing or music there or meditation, they're all flow state activities. And so one of the things I try to do with my students is help them to understand those mechanisms so that they can perform better as students and athletes and human beings. Um, but yeah, I think that, and I think we're just going to see more and more research about flow states uh, coming up because it's kind of the gold standard for performance and for feeling good. So everything that we talked about today here on this healthy options program is about learning, taking those steps, the baby steps, one thing at a time, start with beginner's minds. It's okay to just start at the beginning and add and add and add, and that'll help you get to that flow state, won't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly well, right. I cannot even believe, I cannot even believe that we have run out of time, but um, I am so, uh, you'll have to come back. There's so much more to talk about. Um, our guest today mm -hmm. on uh, Healthy Options has been Ian Ramsey, founder and director of the Kaufman Program for Environmental Writing and Wilderness Exploration at North Yarmouth Academy. We really, are I really appreciate speaking with you today. And uh, we'll have all these links. There's some people you mentioned. We're gonna, you, can, you can learn more about, about some of these things uh, that we talked about. And you can also find out recent programs on, uh, on EWERU at uh, our archives. And again, we have been uh, speaking with Ian Ramsey, who also teaches all sorts of mindfulness and brain science and physiology. And all of these things have been uh, such a, a great asset as we uh, move into the uh, to the rest of our lives right here on Healthy Options. So thank you, Joel Mann and Amy Brown of ERU for engineering support, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thanks to our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.